Back in 2009, I decided to journey through Patagonia, the remote southern expanse in Argentina and Chile. The landscapes were astounding, a wild, rugged place that Bruce Chatwin once famously called the uttermost part of the earth. There's a lot of natural beauty to see down there, but few things struck me more than facing a massive expanse of ice, the Perito Moreno Glacier. The glacier is perhaps one of the most popular tourist destinations, but I was nevertheless astounded at the immensity of it. It's the third largest reserve of freshwater in the world. In front of you towers an ice wall standing 200 feet above the lake's waterline, almost close enough to touch. And every few minutes, there's a brand new drama unfolding. A great collapse as the front end of the glacier tumbles down into the waters of Lago Argentina. I couldn't shake the sight. Here was a formation of solid water whose surface area, nearly 250 square kilometers, was actually bigger than the bustling metropolis of Buenos Aires, Argentina's capital city. The alien blue formation seemed to recede into the mountains as if reaching out into eternity into that gray and unpredictable Patagonian horizon. This was not my first moving encounter with ice, but it forever changed the way that I saw it. Today's episode is about this unique and fascinating substance. It seems to embody histories that feel at once eternal and timeless. It helps us literally define the geological ages. But ice is also telling of our fragile contemporary moment its slow retreat speaking the urgencies of our changing planet. It is ripe with metaphors, the hidden away sitting just beneath the tip of the iceberg, a snowflake at once fragile and unique. The same thing that sunk the Titanic gives way under our boots. As author Mariana Gosnell notes, ice is changeable, idiosyncratic, complex. It's more brittle than glass, but it can flow like molasses. It can last 20,000 years or vanish in seconds. What a strange thing, this solid phase of life's essential liquid. For many of my friends and colleagues, ice remains a lifelong object of investigation, experimentation, and passion. Today, we're trying to share in some of that fascination. In our first segment, we look at the surprising process of ice crystallization and how important non-ice is to ice itself. Next, we head to the Arctic to look at rotten ice, where we explore how microorganisms potentially shape how ice melts. Finally, and I'm really excited about this one, we take a look at a recent episode of the popular TV show Game of Thrones and ask about the weight-bearing capacity of frozen lakes. We'll try to keep that segment spoiler light, but for those of you who are not caught up on the show, you might want to skip ahead for that section. Coming up from the surface, I'm Rod Fadak, and you're peering through the periscope. Today, we're talking about ice. Mariana Gosnell opens her seminal book on ice with a story of waiting. She wants to watch her subject in action, 
she is watching a lake freeze. After renting a cabin in New Hampshire next to a small forest lake, she walks and she waits. With fluctuating weather, the process requires patience. Even with temperatures below freezing, the water remains warm, slushy at best. But as the temperatures plummet and the water itself reaches freezing, it sometimes still remains in liquid form. As Gosnell discovers, even when water itself is at its freezing point, 32 degrees Fahrenheit or zero Celsius, it won't necessarily form into ice. A stubborn fluid, water will sometimes remain a liquid well below its freezing point, in a state known as supercooled. It turns out water is fairly reluctant to make any phase changes, especially from a liquid to a solid. The fact that water can supercool shows us just how reluctant it can be to spontaneously crystallize. It needs a bit of serenading to turn from a jumble of fluid, hydrogen, and oxygen molecules into regularly patterned solid ice crystals. When liquid water turns to solid ice, it often relies on a process called nucleation. Nucleation is fancy language that describes the process of creating the very first ice crystal in an environment where there otherwise isn't any ice. In other words, it describes the first moment when water molecules self-organize into a crystal and form the pattern that is then reproduced in the process of crystallization. If we think about ice in terms of fire, nucleation is like the spark that then ignites the flame. With water turning to ice, it's rare that nucleation happens without some help from the outside. Only at the very coldest temperatures, minus 40 degrees Celsius, will this happen spontaneously. Now this is not to say that water is lazy when it's this cold. Supercooled water is poised and ready, in a prime state to form ice. But eager as it is, ice still needs a model structure in order to reorganize its atoms around a crystal lattice pattern. Like a sprinter waiting for the gun, supercooled water simply waits for instructions on how to become ice. Water wants to be ice when the air is very cold, a scientist tells Gosnell by the lake. It just has to learn how. But in order for the crystals to grow, they need a teacher, a pattern, a seed, something to model their crystalline structures from. With no teacher, there are no patterns, and thus there is no ice. Nucleation doesn't just happen, not at least until it gets very, very cold. The best teachers, it turns out, are ice crystals themselves. So drop the tiniest bit of ice into a supercooled body of water and boom, all of it will rapidly freeze. Other things, like sudden impacts, can also function as nucleating events, jarring the water molecules into crystalline configurations that can then cascade the rest of the ice building process. But this is what's more interesting. More commonly, it is non-water that tells the ice how to form its crystals. Foreign particles like dirt or even bacteria can teach water molecules how to become ice in a process called heterogeneous ice nucleation. This is why almost everything around us, things like Gosnell's lakes and puddles, freeze much closer to the commonly known freezing point of water, around zero degrees. Bacteria are also probably how and why snow forms in clouds around the same temperature. The fact that non-ice, things like bacteria and fungi, can teach water to form itself into ice was a striking and unexpected discovery. 
It dates back to the 1960s, when two separate research groups stumbled on the idea independently from one another. Both groups isolated a specific culprit responsible for their respective ice problems, a bacterium called Pseudomonas syringae. Let's call it pseudo for now. In both cases, these research groups recognized that pseudo was an exceptionally effective ice nucleating substance, at once provoking rains to turn to snow, but also damaging plants like corn at temperatures closer to the traditional freezing point. For both of these groups, and the wider scientific community, it was a profound surprise that so much of the ice around us is conditional on the presence of bacteria. You have actually encountered the effects of pseudo on multiple occasions, probably without even knowing it. If you've ever had a good ski day on the mountain, you can thank the bacterium. It helps clouds finally decide that their water content will turn into unique snowflakes and drop onto the mountain. But even when the skies just aren't cooperating, pseudo also helps mountain resorts produce their artificial snow. Ski resorts worldwide are increasingly relying on some form of artificial or man-made snow, fired out from big snow guns. You've probably seen those big cannons sitting around next to the groomed trails. They look like big fans on the snow. This snowmaking process is essentially a big spraying operation. It works when water is mixed with compressed air and fired through a mixing nozzle, which atomizes it. But remember, water doesn't just spontaneously turn into ice or snow, even if it's freezing outside. So scientists quickly understood that something would be needed to help the ice nucleate. They wanted to make sure that this atomized water turned to snow before falling onto the slopes. So in the 1980s, commercial chemists piggybacked on the potential for this bacterium to help in that process. Eastman Kodak, yep, the same Kodak of Kodak Moments, patented a freeze-dried pellet mixture of Pseudomonas syringae cultures, calling their product Snowmax. And they began selling this mixture for use in artificial snow guns around the world. There's actually a really interesting history to tell about Snowmax as a product, and it deserves more time than we can give it here. To make a long story short, it was once very popular in the early 1990s, but its use has declined following controversies over its environmental impact. Its patent has been sold off a number of times to various companies, and now it's owned by the Snowmax company operating out of Colorado. The freeze-dried bacterium still remains a popular solution sold to ski resorts worldwide for their snowmaking. So next time you're out there carving it up on the slopes, take a second to give those flagella-toting suckers some serious props. So all that business about the uniqueness of the snowflake, but it's so rarely mentioned that in order for water to form these unique patterns, it needs a bit of outside help, a bit of a nudge, a teacher who can give it the idea for the unique shape it will take. I think there's a beautiful lesson in that for everyone. Our next segment on rotten ice is written by Julianne, based on her fieldwork with sea ice scientists in the Arctic. It is voiced by Kristen Flemons. After the 4th of July in 2015, an intrepid team of five sea ice scientists sets out for the top of the world in Ukiakvik, Alaska. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to 
By this time in summer, the midnight sun lays undisputed claim over the Arctic. It has shone continuously now from May 11th and will not set again until August 2nd. Grassy hummocks emerge on the tundra. Ground-hugging flowers cautiously lift their heads, and the edge between land and sea reveals itself. From shore, the Chukchi Sea stretches unbounded to the north, east, and west, an open, watery mass with not a shred of ice in sight. But the sea ice scientists have come here purposefully to investigate sea ice. So what are they doing, arriving at the height of Arctic summer? These researchers are from the Polar Science Center, based at the University of Washington in Seattle. They have come to Barrow to characterize rotten ice, or sea ice that has undergone extreme melt. To understand rotten ice, we first need to know a few things about sea ice. Previously, we heard about Mariana Gosnell's enchanting encounter with lake ice. It is as thin and clear as a windowpane. She remarks that people have compared being on clear lake ice to standing on air or riding in a glass-bottomed boat. When dropped from high enough, the ice shatters. Hardness and glass-like transparency are key features of fresh ice. Sea ice, by contrast, develops out of frozen seawater. It's milky in color, translucent, and relatively soft. So why are these two things so different? The key is salt. As ice crystals organize themselves around a particle, they push out impurities like salts to their boundaries. When seawater freezes, these salts concentrate in tiny pockets of brine, which eventually join up to form vertical brine channels. The brine, salt crystals, air bubbles, and other impurities scatter light in multiple directions, kind of like shining a light into the fog, giving sea ice its milky white appearance. The inclusion of liquid brine in sea ice helps explain its relative softness, even slushiness. Salt, in short, shapes the material properties and behaviors of sea ice. Among these properties, the Rotten Ice team is interested in the structural integrity of sea ice. That is, how well does sea ice hold together, especially after several weeks' exposure to the midnight sun? As sea ice warms over the summer, isolated brine pockets and air bubbles within the ice grow and link up into a highly connected network of conduits. The interior structure of sea ice can be compared to a sponge or Swiss cheese. It's full of voids. This is where the term rotten comes in. Sea ice is structurally, not biologically, rotten. That said, there is a biological component to rotten ice. And this is what piques the scientists' curiosity. Sea ice is an unexpectedly rich habitat for microscopic life. As seawater cools, sticky ice crystals called frazzle sweep algae and bacteria out of the water column and into the surface layer. When sea ice grows, bacteria and algae, along with salt, are excluded from the solid ice structure into liquid chambers within the sea ice matrix. In this frigid, briny interior, a microecology evolves. Algae attach to the sea ice walls. Bacteria graze on the algae and grow in number, 
Viruses infect the bacteria and decrease their populations. Cold-adapted microorganisms not only conform to their icy habitat, but can actively shape it. For example, sea ice algae and some bacteria produce something called exopolymers, a gelatinous substance that allows them to attach to the sea ice walls. Could these gels interact with the ice microstructure and, by implication, shape the structural integrity of sea ice? What if gels produced by algae and bacteria actually help preserve ice integrity, and hence their habitat? These are the questions that compel the rotten ice scientists to venture into the melting Arctic. They have traded snow machines for boats as they sail into the Chukchi Sea, searching for chunks of sea ice. The timing of their arrival is critical. They want to catch the rotten ice, ice that is on the verge of disintegration, of complete meltdown. As global temperatures increase and the Arctic summer lengthens, rotten ice may become more prevalent. On one hand, longer exposure to warmer temperatures may lead to increased melt. But on the other hand, a longer warm season may allow microbiological communities and the production of gels to thrive, counteracting the effects of melt. For now, though, this is an active research topic that the scientists continue to investigate. There's a, obviously a hole, a breathing hole there, and a big, which is melted out, so it's going be more than a meter thick. So it's probably pretty rotten. As mentioned in the opening bit, this next segment does contain some light plot spoilers from the latest season of Game of Thrones. Our recommendation is to watch the damn TV show, but in lieu of that, you might want to come back after you're caught up to revisit this discussion. It'll be more fun anyway. In the penultimate episode of Season 7 of Game of Thrones called Beyond the Wall, there is a standoff in the wild, wintry north. Our heroes are running from the Horde, a great legion of frosty, undead soldiers called Whites. That's W-I-G-H-T-S. Think of them like frozen zombies. Their chase takes the heroes out onto a frozen lake, a lake which starts to crumble under their feet. But they can't stop. The Whites are closing in, only steps behind them. Facing sure demise, the heroes risk it, running toward a small island at the center of the lake, with what seems like thousands of Whites in tow. Although the ice withstands the heroes' weight, it cannot stand the immense load of the zombie horde, and the undead pursuers find themselves quickly crashing through the surface. The collapsing ice has both saved the heroes by cutting them off from the white horde, and it has almost certainly spelled doom, 
stranding them, surrounded on the center landmass. So there they are, in a good old-fashioned standoff, or at best, a stalemate. Game of Thrones is a self-declared saga about fire and ice. The northern ice wall is literally that which stands between the realm and its oblivion. But the dynamics of ice have never played such a prominent plot role until this very particular climactic moment. It certainly got us wondering, how many whites might actually be supported by this lake, at least as is portrayed in the episode? Would a lake of this size, with this kind of ice, be able to support our heroes? What would the actual white-bearing capacity of the lake look like? Can we calculate this ourselves based on the little information we have from watching the episode? Let's give it a shot. To figure this out, we'll be using a common field measurement called Gold's formula. Gold's formula is often used to estimate the effective load-bearing capacity of ice based on its thickness. It's actually got an interesting history. Its name has nothing to do with the metallic substance or the gold standard but instead comes from its developer, Lorne W. Gold. In the 1950s, Gold was a research scientist working with the National Research Council in Ottawa, Canada. At the time, there were no reliable ways to determine how much weight ice of a given thickness could safely support. Gold noticed that the Canadian pulp and paper industry regularly used lakes for their logging operations, keeping machinery, men, and horses on their frozen surfaces during the cold winters. He found and enlisted a couple of paper companies willing to record their experiences with instances of ice support and failure over the season. His specially designed form had loggers record relevant details whenever a log, a vehicle, or even a horse fell through the ice. He asked them to note the weather conditions and any estimated ice thickness at the time, and to give an estimate of the weight of the load that broke through. In his original publication from 1960, you can actually read some of the form's evocative entries. One of them, for instance, reads, The ice broke in front, horse went in head first. In addition to these detailed notes, the forms also contained enough precision to give gold the ability to come up with a general formula for ice's supportive capacity. It's actually deceptively simple. P equals A times H to the power of 2, where P is the allowable weight in tons, H is the thickness of ice in inches, and A is gold's constant, 0 0.025. So now let's turn back to Game of Thrones, armed with gold's formula, and try and get a sense of how much weight, or how much white, this episode's lake will support. Let's rewind and return to our group of heroes as they first scurry across the cracking lake ice. The entourage is made up of eight large men, carrying weapons and draped in both armor and fur. They are, at the time of their flight, also carrying one captured white. Taken together as a group, I think it would be safe to say they might weigh as much as one ton. We're going to need to compare their weight to the allowable load on the ice, based on Gold's formula, represented by P. But it's worth noting that the small group is dispersed as they run across the cracking surface toward the center landmass, so their collective load is distributed. This means the ice has much less concentrated weight to support. In such a scenario, I think it's safe to assume that the surface only has to support one of them at any given spot. 
Sandor Clegane, nicknamed the Hound, would be at the top end of the weight distribution. Not only because he's a beast of a man, but because he's carrying the captured white on his shoulders, a white draped in furs. I would estimate their load to be just under 375 pounds in total. So now that we have the maximum hero load, we need to figure out the estimated thickness of ice on the lake. Fortunately, we're able to see cross-sections of ice after it breaks up into chunks a bit later, when the horde of whites collapses into it. The lake ice appears pretty thin in this first instance, probably only about 5 or 6 inches in depth. Let's return to Gold's formula again, which uses Gold's constant, 0 0.025, times the thickness of ice in inches, so about 5 or 6, and we square that to find the allowable weight in tons. The calculations give us about 0.6 to 0.9 tons, so between about 1,200 and 1,800 pounds of weight. This is plenty of extra capacity to carry each and every one of the heroes individually, even Sandor and his white, but not quite enough to carry them bunched up as a single group. We should note that Gold's formula is mostly intended to measure static loads, meaning weight that is stationary on a surface, a parked car, perhaps a slow walker. It doesn't factor in dynamic loading or sudden impacts on ice, like when our heroes get tackled and knocked into it. Motion and impact induce more complicated loading scenarios and associated ice responses, since ice is an elastic material. So we're still deep in best guess territory. But while we're wildly guessing, let's look at the pursuing white horde, which does in fact break through the surface ice moments after the heroes reach their center island. It's hard to estimate the number of undead in pursuit of our heroes, but from the masses of bodies, the first wave on the ice looks to be about 500 strong. The average weight of a white is hard to guess, since they are all in different states of decay. Some are mere skeletons with rags, others still carry flesh and weapons. We would bet, on average, they weigh slightly less than the average human male, probably about 120 pounds, plus all their gear and furs as well, so let's say 180 pounds as our standard white. That means with 500 of them storming onto the ice all at once, the load suddenly crescendos to 90,000 pounds, or about 45 tons, well more than the 1,800 pounds supportive capacity of the lake as we calculated just now. So it makes sense that they would crash through and have to retreat, just as we see happen in the episode. I think we can now return to our original question. How many whites can the lake actually support, at least as it appears at this point in the episode? The calculation is actually fairly easy. 1800 pounds of support divided by about 180 pounds per white. So we're looking at about 10 whites in one place at one time. We should add, one downside to Gold's formula is that it has no real notion of area when calculating these loads, so we'll have to make another assumption, that when we refer to whites in one place, we are presuming a surface area roughly equivalent to a vehicle, like a truck, as it was implied in Gold's original calculations. Later in the episode, we return to the standoff having now lasted over a frigid night. The temperatures have plummeted, and the lake ice has refrozen. Without giving away too much more, 
We later see that in parts of the lake, the refrozen ice is much thicker, upwards of one to two feet thicker, after the cold night. Let's ignore whether such a rapid change in thickness is realistic or not, and once again ask, would this newly refrozen ice support the ever-growing horde of undead? As Gold's formula indicates, ice gets exponentially stronger for each inch gained in its thickness, so this might actually be a close call. I wonder, 0.025 times 12 or 24 inches squared, so let's give a big range between 3.6 and say 14 and a half tons, or between 7,200 pounds and about 2,900 pounds as the ice's new supportive capacity. With the most generous guess of ice thickness after the overnight refreeze, there is a possibility that upwards of 160 whites could be supported in a single area, but we would tip the scale toward ice failure due to the overall distribution of stresses and the sudden shocks from the whites running in toward our heroes. It's one thing to have 14 tons of weight moving across one area, it's another thing entirely to have nearly a quarter million tons of weight suddenly pouring onto the ice's surface. You'll have to watch the episode to see whether it holds or not. I don't think Gold ever calculated how much dragon's breath it takes to compromise ice, so I think we'll leave it there for now and hope that we never have to make these kinds of guesses out there in the field, under our furs, running as prey from the untamed north. And so there you have it, the magical, wonderful, confounding world of ice. Like the tip of the iceberg, this is truly just scratching the surface of all the mystery and surprise that the substance provokes. This is the crystalline, magic house of glass, a diamond dust, a wondrous snow, needles of lake ice, and the roar of frost. Ice appears in infinite ways around us, teeming with biology, learning to take shape. It is precarious and powerful, fickle and flexible. We've been moved by ice this episode, and hope you have been too. I think we have so much more to explore on this topic, I wouldn't be surprised if we made a second part to this. I think it's worth dedicating more time and more stories to the substance, and we've tremendously enjoyed exploring it here. We hope you've enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed putting this episode together. Hey, if you did like it, would you mind giving us a review on iTunes and telling a friend? It'll help us spread the word and get some new listeners. Thank you so much to Julianne Yip for writing her segment on Rotten Ice and Kristen Flemons for voicing it. Yeah, and thanks so much to Bonnie Light, Karen Young, and Monica Oriana at the University of Washington's Polar Science Center, and to Professor Carrie Franz at Weber State University for sharing their stories with us and providing feedback on this segment. Thank you so much to Julianne and Olivier Bollinger for extensive feedback and discussion on the dynamics of ice in the Game of Thrones segment and some clarifications on ice nucleation and ice properties. There are a million ways to get a hold of us. You can find us on Twitter at PeriscopePod, and you can email us at podcastperiscope at gmail.com. That's all one word, podcastperiscope at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you, either about your ideas for new topics or fact checks, or if you want to contest our calculations or for any reason at all. There's more coming, so stay tuned and stay warm.